Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books Network in History. Today we have with us um, Professor Diana Kelly, who has been an academic for over 30 years. She has taught and researched history, industrial relations, organizational behavior, and human resources management, management history, and workplace safety. She has held various academic administrative roles, which were sometimes fruitful, but took her away too often from family, reading, researching, and teaching. She has been working at the University of Wowloon in Australia. And today we're going to talk about her latest book, which is called The Red Tailorist, The Life and Times of Walter Nicholas Polakoff. In this book, The Red Tailorist, she traces the adult life and works of Walter Polakoff, focusing on his socialist scientific management ideals and ways these were constrained by conventionality in the USA in the first half of the 20th century. Tracing Polakoff's activities and achievements, this book explores the contradictions of a prolific writer, socialist engineer, and scientific management ideologue in the decades until his death in 1948. Um, Dee Kelly, thank you very, very much for being with us at New Books Network. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Bernardo, for, for having me and for giving me this opportunity. Um, it's our pleasure. Thank you. And would you tell us, or could we start with our uh, usual question, which is, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a historian? Yep, for sure. I'm, my, my interest in history, I think, goes back to my earliest years as a child in New Zealand, um, I would often wonder how, it was extraordinarily narcissistic in a way, how would someone of my age have lived 100 years ago, 500 years ago, and so on. And that interest in history kind of broadened as I went through school um, and my high school and at undergraduate level, I also studied history because I really, really enjoyed that trying to understand complex things which history seemed to do. Um, but then it was impossible to get a job by the uh, 1980s. It was impossible to get a job as an historian. History wasn't very in at that time. It was all about uh, business and enterprise. So I, I, in fact, started working in a business faculty teaching um, employment relations, human resource management, and so on. But I saved my capacity for history by writing first about the history of the steel industry in Australia, and then my PhD, was, which was in the history of academic industrial relations, employment relations in Australia. Um, and much of what I taught when I was teaching in business, I would use historical examples. Then, of course, industrial relations, employment relations became very unpopular, but I was fortunate to be shifted um, into a history department, which is where I've been for the last 10 years. Thank you. That's very interesting. And then how, moving from the steel industry and industrial relations, did you became interested in management history or the history of management, however you define it? I, Interestingly, I always used to get into trouble when I was at industrial relations conferences, employment relations conferences, because I kept they always focused on labor and unions. 
And I always said there are two parties to the employment relationship, the employers and the employees, and we should look more at what employers do, what managers do. Um, And I actually taught a subject called managers and industrial relations at a time when that wasn't very common. Um, It was started by a colleague of mine, but uh, it was something I found interesting. And that was when I became interested in ideas about management and about attitudes of management and you know there was this was the days of of socio-technical approaches and different uh, TQM and so on but I was much more interested in more fundamental things such as how technology and work and management linked together that was what I was looking at in the steel industry for example but it was getting these management ideas that started me looking at Taylorism partly because it was like everybody would say, oh, Taylorism, dah, dah, hate it, terrible. And I wanted to explore that a little bit further and I was lucky to work with scholars like uh, Chris Nyland who were also exploring this further. And I looked at, I wanted to look at the Taylor Society because the Taylor Society was the society that was formed um, by those followers of Frederick Winslow Taylor and who most sought to keep those ideas alive. And the Taylor Society was a very interesting society. It was at a time when there were lots of societies and the Taylor Society was full of chaps and they were mostly chaps apart from people like um, Mary Van Cleek um, uh, and and Florence, uh, Francis Perkins and things, but the Taylor Society was full of what would you would say maybe liberal, social democrat, many progressive, some socialist members, but they were they thought they were following the ideas of Frederick Winslow Taylor, and they were surprisingly given this idea that Taylorism was anti-worker, they were mostly respectful of workers, and then. One time I was looking at the minutes of the Taylor Society and I came across a statement that said, in the ideology of the working class, this surplus value and profit appears as unpaid labour. Under such conditions, it's impossible to speak about establishing the harmony of interests of employers and the employees, um, which just reveals the ignorance of our social foundations. This was old-fashioned primitive Marxism. What was it doing in the Taylor Society minutes? And that's when I started, that was Walter Nicholas Polakoff, and that's when I started to take a much more deep interest in his role and how he was in the Taylor Society and and how he had been there and what happened afterwards. That's interesting. Thank you. I mean, Clearly, that's one of the main attractive features of your book is precisely to link this, what you have said, how this Tayloristic and social, and social uh, progressive liberal group of people and, and, and um, especially Taylorism that has been um, by now taken as a, as a very superficially Actually, links because of the time with with ideas of Marxism and the and the 
um, emerging uh, Soviet Union. But let me let me before we before we, we we come into that. Let me let me ask you something else, which which uh, I, I don't know if I'm wrong, but why is it that there is this strong group of scholars around us, particularly in in, in Australia? looking at management history and particularly looking at Taylor. And I'm, you know, I'm, here I would put you and put other of our colleagues such as, um, you know, Kyle Bruce and Andy Bowen. And, and, and actually, you know, they, they as a group, you've, you have resuscitated the Journal of Management History and, and you have, you know, basically, uh, mainly through, through scholars in, in, in Australia and New Zealand, this, this, this journal has uh, come up again in the ranks. So, So why why this fascination with Taylor? Why this fascination with with management history? Because you've got to understand managers to understand how business works. You've got to understand managers historically um, because a lot of it has been myth mythologized. Um, and it is interesting that besides those colleagues that you talk about, There are equally a number of colleagues who have written about scientific management in Australia as a very negative effect. And there's been some great labour history done on the impact of scientific management in the the railways, for example, which was that very narrow measuring and disempowering kind of scientific management that many people have talked about. Why... So many of us, I don't know. I think it is the demythologizing. I think it is about uh, trying to understand the nature of work and employment under different conditions. Um, and because I think there is some good scholarship to be done there because it was such an empty field. Because, I mean, to give it uh, probably less a color eye to my, to my question, to, to give even more um, weight or... Uh, praise to 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 that research work. There is very little in terms of teaching space for that. Most of you, or all of you, are teaching, like you said, you know, something else. Ob human relations, and and yet you're carrying out all of this this research work uh, very very actively. Yes, aren't we lucky in academia that we can teach one thing and research what we like. Uh, I think it's um, it's a decreasing opportunity, but it's still possible. Um, and if something you know is really inspires you, it is great to be able to research it. Thank you. Well, let, let, let's go back to to to, to Mr. Polakov, and 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 so you that that quote was the one that that got your attention, and and how was the process of finding more about him and, and writing a biography, which is also something that is very um, worthy of, of your book because there are relatively little biographies of non-main characters, let's, let, let's say that, that way, uh, you know, that are not main industrialists or are somebody like uh, Alfred Chandler or Leah Yakoka or somebody, you know, that it's a big, big name. Um, biographies are not um, something that or, or is something that is becomingly becoming increasingly used in in business and management history 
I think, thank you, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, I think uh, biography is actually a wonderful, I'm, I talk about this in the last chapter of the book, the biography is a wonderful insight into how things work. You can do an overview if you think about um, uh, looking at something from a helicopter, you, you don't see certain things. Whereas if you're looking at something from on the ground, if you're looking at scientific management from the perspective of someone who was a member of the Taylor Society, you're going to get a clearer uh, understanding. It may not, it's not the whole understanding, but you're going to get a clarity that you're not going to get if you have a helicopter view. And I'm strongly of the view that biography is a wonderful way of, of gaining a richer understanding of things. And that was why I wanted to uh, write a biography of Polakoff almost from those earliest days. I wasn't able to do it for quite a while because I had head of school, you know, administrative and academic roles. Um, but it, I kept going, trying to find more and more about him over the years that I was a very busy administrator, dean, director, so on, um, because I felt a, I wanted his story to be told, but B, I felt it gave some richness to the kind of what I saw as oversimplified approaches either side of the um, uh, either side of the uh, the debates about Taylorism, and so I it was a hard row to get information. Polakoff had no papers that were evident. I'm sure he would have had. He was that kind of person. But when he died at the age uh, of 70, he um, he was married to uh, his third wife. It was her second marriage, and she married three other husbands after him. And I suspect somewhere along the road his papers were kind of dropped as uh, unimportant. So what I had to do was then go, I got to go all over the United States, it was wonderful, um, to digging out different archives and finding material. So the t correspondence between Frederick Winslow Taylor and, and Henry Lawrence Gant, I went to uh, uh, California to the Hoover Institute, which actually gave me some of my most exciting bits and pieces. Um, I went to the National Archives Research Administration in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, because that's where Polakoff's employment records were. I got to go all over the US um, finding this material and then trying to bring it all together from these different sets of archives. Um, um, was there any temptation or opportunity to look at uh, any of the fruit print that he might have left in the Soviet Union? No. No, I did try and look at material, um, but it, it was very difficult. Um, I'm told that someone was working on this material in, this, in Russia, um, but the material I, uh, the only material I had was his own letters to Harrington Emerson um, who was also in the Soviet Union about the same time and who went through quite a scary event where his 
translator disappeared one night um, in early Stalinist days. Um, so I had to pull it all together for his time in the Soviet Union from those sorts of things and, of course, from uh, some deep reading of Russian history of the time. Um, but to get the actual footprint, he I actually don't think he did that much. That's what I say in the book. He, he did a couple of, of model factories. Exactly. Um, that's, that's the impression that one gets that he was there, that he brought some of the ideas, but as, as you say, that he was uh, prone to give more importance to his work than what, what he actually was, was doing. And probably that was, which, which in a way is also interesting to see how he's interacting with other members of the society and to what extent, uh, which is something that I've commented with some of my students, to what extent did Taylorism actually had a, an actual impact? And, 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 you know, how much was it really just, just people liking this sort of like what, what we call today a narrative and, and actually uh, changing practice, uh, being, uh, you know, um, yeah, actually being informing and, and changing practice in, in that sense? Perhaps this, I mean, he did affect the workings of a lot of companies in his time as a consulting engineer during the 1920s. Um, and I like the fact that his company, when he formed one, was a, r responsible for the original lighting of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. But I think his greatest impact was actually when he applied his scientific management principles of researching and understanding what was needed um, and exploring with when he was working for the United Mine Workers under uh, John L. Lewis. Um, and he was the engineering director for um, probably about a decade, not quite. Um, and he would t take those scientific management principles of understanding what was happening and talking to workers. If, if there was a mine accident 300 miles away, he would drive to that mine, talk to the miners, find out what was happening, and that was what informed all of the work he did and with the United Mine Workers as the engineering director, trying to improve occupational health and safety in mines. Um, and that was 10 years, I think, that was quite fruitful. And he pops up. Uh, he was in various US um, Congress hearings and so on. But that bit has kind of been written out. There was actually more about him on the United Mine Workers site 20 years ago than there is now. They've kind of deleted him from the United Mine Workers site and the health and safety, occupational health and safety aspects uh, have been kind of slid over a bit, but he was quite important in those respects. But according to the book, the, the work that he did, and as you mentioned a moment ago, the work that he did in the 1920s seems to have had or have been more important, if not have more impact, than the one that he does after the, the Great Recession, after he goes to Russia things didn't really work out, and then he comes back and finds himself out of work. Yes. He comes back 
finds himself out of work. It's interesting that up until that time, 1932, uh, 31, he was in regular correspondence um, with Morris L. Cook and the, the correspondence ends in 1931, which I think indicates how many people saw his going to the Soviet Union in 1930-31. I mean, he's only there 18 months, if that, because he actually takes his wife off um, for a rest cure in Switzerland for part of the time. But he comes back, cannot get a job because, well, A, there's a, there were hundreds and hundreds thousands of engineers out of work at the time. He does manage to get a series of short-term jobs um, in Works Progress Administration um, and other, you know, Roosevelt uh, New Deal uh, activities. But he never lasts very long. I suspect he was quite quarrelsome. And he seems to, I mean, this is how he finished up at the mine workers, people saying, look, he's too bossy, get rid of him. And at that time, by that time, John L. Lewis was losing his grip as well. But he couldn't, so he has these, from 31 to 36, he has a series of contracts. Um, and at, in that time, in the uh, for the government, and that's really useful, the reason for going to St. Louis, Missouri, and looking at NARA, which is one of life's great resources for a researcher, he then starts at the mine workers and that's also when the FBI start to follow him because they thought he's with the mine workers and he's been to Russia, he must be dodgy. And so his FBI files also were useful in understanding what he'd done and where he was, although one has to take FBI files with a slight grain of salt. Yes. Let, let's take a step, a step back and let's go back to the title of the book, because you've, which is which is the Red Taylorist. Yet, how you tell the story for quite a bit of time, he seems to have held back his socialist or what we would call today socialist um, views away from his main writings. Um, how how could we reconcile that? Or you don't think so? No, I I. It's interesting um, in. All, almost all of his books, and he wrote four books, four major books, and dozens and dozens of other pamphlets and and uh, shorter book, you know, novel, not novella type length. They weren't novel novellas, um, but he always slips in. Almost always, he slips in um, ideas about workers under capitalism, and it, that becomes it, it's almost invisible. But, and I've never been quite sure whether I approve of him sort of deceptively adding these things, but all the way through his books, um, he, he does talk about, uh, I'm just wondering if I can think of something. No, I'm not sure I can easily, but he talks about, he will throw in some comment about how the worker must be looked after, how waste, he, he's a great man for waste, waste in industry, which, of course, was the uh, Hoover uh, inquiry in 1921. But he uses waste to mean the waste of people's efforts. And he will talk about that Marxist quote about the uh, 
you know, uh, man does not um, make his own history. It, he's built on the shoulders of giants, the, uh, the long generations that have built on before. This is all in all of his books. And it, it's it's slipped in in almost in these driest of engineering tomes contains this. So he doesn't el- eliminate it. He just slips it in. And uh, probably something that we want to mention is that for certain degree, um, these are not ideas which are unique. I mean, I, I guess that for a number of people of his generation, um, certainly in the UK, and that was going to be the next question, why doesn't he have um, more relationship with the with UK uh, people? But anyway, but certainly in the UK, there there is all of these um, people of about the same age that grow convinced of of Marxist Leninist uh, ideas and and are actively debating that and, and and that has a you know in the forthcoming decades that that has an impact and, and Pokolov is, is a Russian with something that we didn't mention he's Russian originally he's a, a middle upper class Russian because he's able to get an education before he gets to the United States and 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 that's how he he starts working and, and eventually gravitates to the to the Taylor society which where, where a number of other engineers are Are, are doing work so so why why do you think that there is no at least I didn't get that from the book or I missed it that interaction with other circles of like-minded people outside of the United States um, just going to the inside of the United States uh, first I, I, I think it's important to remember that that we had the Red Scare in 1919 when tens of thousands of Russians were swept up uh, and imprisoned and some of them uh, quite badly damaged in the process um, in uh, that, that, that red scare that continued right through the 1920s. And I think in that respect, that's why he stayed on the side of the, uh, the managers of, uh, and so on. In terms of going beyond there, Uh, it's interesting to note that A, in his major works, um, he quotes a lot of British thinkers, not all, not necessarily socialist thinkers, some of the kind of uh, utopian socialists and those who were using utopian socialism like Lord Leverhulme um, of Britain. And it's also worth noting that his books were actually not just published under uh, American, U.S. publishers, but they were published by uh, British publishing houses as well. So there was clearly some evidence to be shown that he um, that he, he was seen as somebody worth listening to in, the, in England, um, but not necessarily that he went there himself. I think he was very focused on being a success, He talks later about, I mean, he was earning somewhere between $12,000 and $18,000 a year at a time when, you know, sort of three or $4,000 a year was, was a, a huge wage. So he was earning lots of money during the 1920s. That kind of success, maybe it was uh, something that lured him, you know, that he was, he was being a socialist, 
and being um, uh, also being a, a successful uh, consulting engineer. He thought he was doing the right thing. Uh, I, I don't want to put too much. I, I love ima- the, the imagination of history, of understanding, saying, well, why did they think this? But I think we can get too carried away. And I certainly had to pull myself back sometimes and say, no, you don't really know that. Yes, but, but in, in, in that sense, or, or following that line of thought, um, you're a non-U.S. scholar based outside of the U.S., who have researched an originally foreign, well, not originally, a foreign-born industrialist in the U.S. So what is your understanding of American capitalism by looking at this experience? Oh, big question. Um, American capitalism, I mean, American capitalism in the 1920s uh, was probably the kind of capitalism writ large in some respects. It was uh, a time of great opportunity, but it was also a time of great poverty. Um, And I think the nature of business was such that that there was this opportunity to go into business and change some things. But we have to take not just American capitalism, but American society, which was influenced by that capitalism, and remember that it was a society that, A, on the one hand, was becoming increasingly aware of its world role, but secondly, was also becoming fearful of all of these new ideas bouncing out from... um, the farmer, farmer Workers' Party and so on, that the, the rises of unionism and socialism, business kept trying to squash that through the 1920s quite, and quite successfully at times. But it was a time when they could run a bit rampant. The earlier years, the antitrust and so on had squ- limited capitalism, but the 1920s is actually in some respects a sort of a clear history of semi-unfettered capitalism. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and, and probably one one last question, not two, one last question in in saying, well, if what would you say to um, undergraduate, to somebody who's in the general public, and they ask you, why should they read your book? Well... It's quite a good book, I think. I think it gives an insight away from either sort of slavish management texts or slavish labour texts. It tries to give a richness, which is what a biography can do. Um, And at the same time, most chapters start with the environment. What was New York actually like in 1906 when he arrived? the sounds, the sights, the what, how people were feeling. So it tries to put these ideas in context. And I think in that way, it tells a simple story, but also shows the complexity of the society in which Polakoff was operating. Thank you very much, Lee. Uh, uh, the, um, and, and then what is your next project? What are you working on these days? 
well, would you believe I've come back to do stuff in Australia because in these interesting times, the idea of traveling is just too complicated. And I discovered in recent months, this is not even um, management history, but it uh, there is a there was another uh, outsider, a judge of the arbitration court uh, commission in Australia in the nineteen seventies and eighties, where they changed the legislation of the uh, industrial arbitration simply to get rid of this guy. So he's another outsider, Justice Jim Staples, and nobody's written his biography. And again, it tell it, I'm hoping I can tell much about the 70s and 80s as I can about the life of Jim Staples and how he was uh, excluded, um, despite the fact he was very bright, very well read, interesting, like, so was Polakoff, um, but never quite made it to the centre and, in fact, was very publicly excluded from the Arbitration Commission in a way that no judge has ever experienced in Australia. Well, I'm sure that was going to make an interesting read as well and look forward to, to that and, and to have you back in New Books Network. Um, Diana Kelly, thank you very much for talking to us today. And uh, uh, to those who are listening to us, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe. And those who have already subscribed, do leave us a comment in the comment sections of, of the podcast, all of that, and, and, and score us in, 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 in your <clears throat> preferred podcast uh, platform. All of that helps us uh, continue with this effort. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bernardo. Goodbye. Bye.